Last November, I preached two sermons from 1 Samuel. The first sermon focused on the anointing of David in chapter 16, and we looked at the differences between what man focuses on, which is the outward appearance, and what God focuses on, which is the heart. And specifically, we considered how Saul and David were very different men because of their inner disposition toward God. We also focused on what Israel's expectations were for a king versus what God's expectations were and why Saul failed in his rule and why David was ultimately anointed as his successor. Finally, we underscored that David was a type, a foreshadowing of the one to come, Jesus Christ, the true man who embodied God's own heart. Then the second sermon was from chapter 17. We further considered why Saul was rejected by God and why David was anointed as his heir and successor in the context of Philistia's warring activity against Israel and Goliath's defiance of the Lord God. We considered how David demonstrated faith in God by facing Goliath, unlike that of his brother, Eliab, who just complained to David, as well as King Saul, who abdicated his responsibility to face Goliath. Finally, we highlighted how David's victory over Goliath was ultimately not his own doing, but of God himself, who protected David and was with him. Today, we're going to pick back up with 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 18, and we're going to further explore the nature and character of a person who has a heart for God by specifically looking at how Jonathan responds to David's victories over Israel's enemies versus how his father, Saul, responds. But ultimately, today's picture, the text is a picture of what the heart looks like when it's governed by faith versus what a heart looks like when governed by fear. So with this context, this background in mind, let's reread our sermon text this morning, except I'm going to pick up with a few verses at the end of 17 for context. So hear God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll start in the last two verses, verse 57 and 58, and then we'll read the first part of 1 Samuel 18. As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come before you and ask that you would incline our hearts to your word, that you would increase our understanding, Lord, that you would be pleased in our sight. Lord, give us, give us faith, Lord. Do not give us a spirit of fear, but help us to walk our faith out, even in the midst of the successes of others, Lord. Would we partake in the kingdom and serving you in whatever venture you call us to, Lord. We ask, Lord, that we would just not be hearers of the word, but doers as well, and we pray this in your son's name, amen. amen. Probably one of the most difficult things for any person to do is to have joy in the midst of other people's successes, especially if those successes come at your own expense or during a period of your own self-doubt or stagnation or maybe even your own failure. It's especially hard to have joy for other people when their successes take them to new heights or to new places, especially when you're feeling left behind and maybe unwanted. Understandably, it's easier to go down the road of self-pity than it is to have genuine joy for others. And it doesn't really matter whether that road of self-pity pertains to your professional achievements, your marital status, your educational opportunities, physical health, economic resources, or your social standing, if that self-pity and lack of joy for others in these and maybe even countless other areas leads to jealousy, the ingredient which rots the bones according to Proverbs 14, verse 30. I know self-pity and jealousy were an issue for me when I was younger. You see, before I married Kendall at the age of 31 and a half, and I wouldn't recommend this here, I had 15 male roommates from college through graduate school during the ages of 18 to 30. Of those 15 roommates, 13 of them married and started families before I did. Also for the other closer best friends I had, but that I didn't live with at that time, during that same period, they all also married before me as well. And so of the 23 men that were most dearest to me at that time, men of whom I shared a sizable portion of my life with, significant portions of my life with, only two remained unmarried when I tied the knot. So I was 21. At first, I was joyful, especially for those that married earlier on, but by the time the 10th wedding had rolled around, 
many of which I attended in one capacity or another, and I can say I was a best man or groomsman many times, I was feeling pretty jaded. You see, a, a person can only eat so many crab cakes, a person can only dance so many waltzes, a person can catch so many garter belts and hear that horrible Pachelbel's Canon and D so many times before that joy might turn to jealousy. However, after, and by the way, that was not played at my wedding. <laughs> However, after a considerable amount of reflection, I later came to understand that my self-pity, the lack of consistent joy for my friends during my early adulthood, wasn't a result of their own marriages, but because I wrongly focused on my own circumstances instead of accepting and submitting to God's good plan for my life at that time. So for me, it was an issue of the heart. Unfortunately, my brothers and sisters, we all have to admit that we struggle with this issue to one degree or another, because all of us have friends, family, or even enemies that succeed in areas where we do not. And if we're not careful, we can succumb to self-pity, joylessness, and jealousy, irregardless of the reasons. And that's what happened to King Saul. His downfall stemmed from his unwillingness to accept and submit to God's will for his life. Saul's hatred for and fear of David was really honestly never about David's successes, ultimately, but about his disdain for God's rule and reign in his own life. So this morning, my friends, I have a question for you, and the question is this. How will you live in light of the success of other people's joys and accomplishments? Will you live in faith as Jonathan did in chapter 18, or in fear as Saul did? And so if you find yourself struggling with this question this morning, maybe dealing with joylessness or jealousy or anger or wondering what God's plan is for you, then this sermon is for you this morning. But what's our starting point? Well, where do we begin? Well, I have two points that I want to share this morning, two gospel truths I want to communicate, not three. And the first point is this. When we focus on the Lord and his will and not on our own circumstances, we are able to respond with love and loyalty. So look again at verse 1 with me. It says this. As soon as he, that is David, finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, we, we read the first few uh, chapters, or last few verses of chapter 17, to show that there's a connection between the preceding event with the current narrative in our text. You see, too often we allow the, the chapter headings, we allow the numbers and the verses to dictate for us the timeline and the flow of the story. But remember, None of these elements that are in your modern Bibles were included in the original writings. There were no chapter headings, there were no numbers, there were no verses. So this is why in verse 1 in chapter 18 it says, as soon as David finished speaking to Saul. You see, Jonathan and Saul's reactions occur within the immediate aftermath of David's victory over Goliath in the Israelite route of the Philistines. And so it's important you evaluate their responses in chapter 18 in light of the events from chapter 17. They're not disconnected. After all, the responses provide a window into the intent, the picture of their heart, what Jonathan is like, what Saul is like. 
And while their responses are both full of emotion, boy, they do vary considerably, don't they? I kind of liken it to a post-game sports interview you see on television. You know, some ESPN reporter asks players from the winning and the losing teams how things went. And because of the proximity of the interview to the end of the game, the emotions of the players are still running quite high. The winning players are usually ecstatic, and the losing players are upset. However, there are some exceptions. Sometimes players from the winning team are angry because they didn't get to make the game-winning play. In a way, that is kind of what's going on here. The author is providing an immediate play-by-play -play response from Saul and Jonathan directly after David's game-winning slingstone toss on behalf of Israel. But while the emotions of a modern-day athlete will probably dissipate, they'll probably die down after a little bit of time, for Jonathan and Saul, their emotional dispositions in this narrative directly correspond to the actions they demonstrate toward David in the present and also in the future. So Jonathan, recognizing he's on the winning team, responds to David with love and loyalty. And so if you look again at verses 1 and 3, they say this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, excuse me. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, contrary to what some modern progressive readers or liberally oriented biblical scholars assert, Jonathan's love for David or David's love for Jonathan was not homoerotic in nature. And so this is not a proof text for the LGBTQ plus agenda, regardless of their dissenting opinions. For those of you unfamiliar with the concept in term, a covenant is simply a contract. It's a pact between two parties, not uncommon to a marriage. So contextually, these verses are speaking about two men that are entering into a contractual agreement with one another. It just so happens that the biblical word ahav, which means to love, served as a key motivation behind Jonathan's covenant initiation with David. Interestingly, the term ahav, which again means to love, was also one of the types of love associated with God's relationship to his own people Israel. Likewise, it was also used to express the type of bond between kings when they're entering into contractual agreements with one another. And we have an example of that in 1 Kings, verse 1. It reads this. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that he had anointed him king in place of his father. And now listen to this. For Hiram always loved David. Contextually, Hiram is providing servants to Solomon because he is honoring his earlier covenant agreement with David. And so again, the usage of the term Ahav in this verse, as it is used with Jonathan and David, contained political overtones as well as expressing natural affection and love. Now, while there are different kinds of covenants within the ancient Near East during this period, the type of covenant Jonathan and David entered into was called a parity covenant. In a nutshell, a parity covenant was entered into by two people of a similar stature. And this was indeed the case for Jonathan and David as both were crowned princes in waiting. 
one through physical lineage as Saul's direct heir, and the other through spiritual lineage as God's chosen heir through the prophet Samuel. However, despite their shared status as crown princes in waiting, I want you to see that there is a beautiful, beautiful biblical picture of what faith in God looks like, a faith which champions love and loyalty and joy on behalf of another's successes in place of elevating oneself. Jonathan is a remarkable person. And so look again at verse 4. It reads, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now, despite those shared symbolic status, ultimately in the immediate context, who is the greater and who is the lesser? Well, that's, that's pretty easy. Jonathan is the greater and David is the lesser. I mean, Jonathan is the direct physical heir to Saul and therefore publicly recognized as having the right to claim Israel's throne. And so when, when Jonathan initiates this covenant with David, it is really not so much a covenant of equals as it would appear. So what's, what's going on in our text? What is Jonathan doing? Well, it is supreme, supreme humility on the part of Jonathan to love, care, and elevate this shepherd boy. Perhaps David's heroism brought on a rush of affection. But regardless of the reason, Jonathan responds in the most peculiar way by giving up his position and power to another. And make no mistake, that's exactly what's going on in the text here. Jonathan is divesting himself of his royal accessories, and he is giving them to David. You see, by God's grace... Jonathan realizes that in God's kingdom, our rights mean nothing, that God's presence and will and obedience in our lives, that, that's what counts. That means everything. And while God did not reveal to us, you know, the exact details of this covenant, we understand what Jonathan intended. We understand that Jonathan intended to lovingly and loyally hand over his rights to the throne. Unheard of to hand it over to the one whom God chose, that's quite amazing. And so Jonathan takes off his uniquely designed princely robe. And by the way, there would have been no other robe like that. It would have been sewn in such a fashion with emblems and used such material that that would have distinguished Jonathan from everybody else. And that is now given to David. He also unstraps his custom-made armor and weapons fit for a king, and he hands them over as well. You know, when Israel came out of Egypt, they fought with plowshares and farming implements. They were not a wealthy, well-armed nation. They were trusting in God. And so the best swords in the land would have belonged to the king and to the princes. And now David has one of those as well. Beloved, it's an absolute contrast to the provision that Saul provides David in chapter 17 versus the provision that Jonathan provides David in chapter 18. In chapter 17, Saul gives David his weapons for battle because he's too chicken to fight himself. He's too scared. And interestingly, David does what? He says, they don't fit, I don't need them. But in chapter 18, Jonathan gives David his weapons as an offering of love and loyalty for a position that he himself is too humble to seize, to usurp. 
And what does David do? He accepts them. He takes them. My friends, Jonathan's faith demonstrates what I see as the theology and ministry of decreasing. Jonathan is purposely decreasing himself so that David may increase. Jonathan is serving a greater kingdom purpose by allowing his own rights to take a back seat to David's successes. And he's doing this out of a spirit of love and joy, thus demonstrating his heart and faith for God. And this, this theological perspective, it's all throughout Scripture. You just have to look for it. It was present within John the Baptist's ministry. As the forerunner, John knew there would be a day when the greatest way he could serve God and his kingdom was to step aside and decrease in order to allow Jesus Christ to increase. And that is exactly how the Apostle John describes John the Baptist's own perspective on his ministry when Jesus arrives and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the following excerpt from John chapter 1 and then 3. It says, The next day he, and that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And then further, in John chapter 3, we read, They, and that's John the Baptist's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and they're all going to him. And John answered, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices great at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. My friends, like Jonathan and like John the Baptist, you, you don't have to be successful to serve with great power in the kingdom of God. Because God has a good plan for your life. See, God uses your perceived failures, your perceived underachievement, your perceived decreases to assist others to serve purposes that benefit the kingdom in ways that you cannot possibly fathom. But I'm not trying to minimize your struggles and your disappointments. I know they're painful. I know they're very real. I know that it hurts. I do know this. I've had those things myself. I've been there many times, and I've wished I could be the one to increase and not decrease, where I could be the one with the successes and not the set setbacks, and I'm sure that's the case for you as well. However, what I'm trying to communicate to you, what I'm trying to tell you, is that because you are the beloved of God, because you are united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing that happens to you, even your failures, none of it is wasted, not one aspect. All of it is used by God for yours and others' benefits and for God's glory. And this is why you and I can be joyful in the midst of our own failures and others' successes, because nothing is wasted, and it's all part of God's plan. Unfortunately, this is what Saul failed to grasp and why he responds to David in the way that he does. And this leads us to our second and our final point. And it's this, when we focus on our circumstances and not on the Lord and his will, we are susceptible to jealousy, anger, 
and fear. So look back again at verses 7 through 9. They say, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And now he said, well, What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. It's kind of hard to fathom that after 40 straight days of battle lines being drawn, 40 straight days of taunting by Goliath, and 40 straight days of fighting between Philistia and Israel, that the only emotional response Saul could muster was jealousy, anger, and fear toward David. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, well, that wasn't Saul's only response. Saul also took David into his own house and even set him over the men of war. Well, that's true. It's in our text. But what was the motivation behind all of it? Was it something Saul did because he loved David, as Jonathan did when he gave up his own royal status and accessories? Or was it possibly based out of a sense of obligation, deception, ill intent, or even guilt? I would argue it was based on the latter. I think it's clearly obvious in the text. Because Saul doesn't show an ounce of emotional gratitude or humility for David's heroics. I mean, it, it should have been Saul who was making the covenant with David, not Jonathan. After all, the passing of 40 days without a champion to face Goliath was, was embarrassing and shameful. And why is that? Because if there was anyone that was qualified to face Goliath and to rep represent Israel in battle, it was King Saul. Remember, Saul was tall. Saul was the king. Saul had the superior weapons. And so I think the, the singing of the Israelite women, I think that reminded Saul just as much about his own disobedience to God's word, as, which is the reason why he was deposed in 1 Samuel 15, as it was about David's own successes. But sadly, it, it didn't have to be that way. Saul's losing the kingdom was predicated on the fact that he disobeyed the prophet Samuel and God on multiple occasions during his reign. And all of this occurred before David even arrived on the scene. And so Saul's jealousy, his anger, his fear toward David, it, it stems from Saul's own negligence and disobedience. However, even in the midst of his sins that eventually cost him his crown and kingdom, there was still a way back for him. And that was for him to do what he hadn't done before, to focus on the Lord and to submit to his will for his own life and for that of Israel. The problem is, is that Saul didn't trust God. If he had, none of this would have happened in the first place. But even though he did, Saul still could, be, could have accepted God's new plan for himself. That's actually what the high priest Eli did when God announced to him through a young Samuel that he was being rejected from his own priestly office. In fact, Eli said in response to God's rejection in 1 Samuel 3.18, he said this, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. You see, the departing, spirit, the departing spirit of God's spirit from Saul way back in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it's not a commentary about Saul's loss of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but about Saul losing the blessing of God as his anointed representative on earth. 
just as Eli lost God's favor as Israel's high priest. And so when the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, this means that God is no longer with him in his capacity as Israel's king, not that Saul himself is irredeemable. But again, unfortunately, the problem is, is that Saul did not trust God. That's the problem. You see, Saul's present and future mistreatment of David, Saul's scheming against David, and Saul's attempts to take David's life with a spear, they all speak to Saul's mistrust of God, doubting the goodness of God, doubting that God knows what he's doing by elevating David over him. And this is why Saul is in fearful awe of David in verses 12 and 15. Saul was unwilling to accept the fact that he had to decrease in order that David could increase for the betterment of the kingdom. As a king, you would think, I want to do what's best for my subjects. Saul could not accept that God's plans required him to step aside, that the best way for Saul to serve Israel was no longer to be her king. So Saul rejected the notion of this new rule or this new role by focusing on his current circumstances instead of broadening his vision. He was in fearful awe because anger and jealousy were the base motivation toward David's rise instead of the love, loyalty, and joy demonstrated by Jonathan, a man with a heart and faith for and in God. Of course, Saul, he's not the only king to reject God's plans. King Herod did the same thing at the announcement and birth of Jesus. The long-awaited Davidic heir, the long-awaited messianic king. Like Saul, Herod was unwilling to concede power and thus took matters into his own hands. I think he thought he was the Messiah or presented himself that way by attempting to murder Jesus when he massacred all the boys two years and under in Bethlehem. If, if only Saul and Herod had understood that it was better to have a heart that trusts in God, that it is better to decrease than to increase, that it is better to obey God's will than to assert your own that it is better to joy in the successes of others than to succumb to jealousy, anger, and fear. If they had only known that it is better to, to have God redeem your failures for his good purposes than to be the best of the best for your own. My friends, we are, we are called to show faith in the face of fear, not fear in the face of faith. We are called to walk into humility, to pursue what is best for others, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to rejoice with others when they succeed, and to even pray for our enemies. This is the way of the narrow path. This is the way of the cross. But I have good news for you, my friends. I have good news today. And the good news is this. Jesus Christ, he died on a cross for your sins, even for the sins of jealousy, anger, and fearfulness. And not only did he die for those sins, but he also died that your failures would be redeemed. My friends, Jesus died so that you might receive the heavenly reward, eternal life with him, even if he wills for you in this temporary life to decrease for the benefit of others, for the sake of his church, for yourself, and for his own glory. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that 
you love us deeply. You redeem our lives. You take even our failures, our sins, and you forgive us. You make something of us. Thank you for each of the ministries we have here in this room, where you've put us, the people that we touch each day, how we serve you. Lord, thank you for using us for your kingdom. Bless us, Lord. May you be honored and worshiped with our lives. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.